you would, uh, take out your Bibles, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 42, and we'll be looking at this chapter today. Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this date with his father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. But this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place, unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. 
And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the sack of the, uh, in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the the, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob told their father, Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray now, God, for the preaching of your word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that we may hear and grow in our knowledge of our Savior Jesus. That we may hear and give him all glory and honor. We pray that you would plow deeply the seeds of your word into our hearts, that from it would come much fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The Proverbs remind us of the importance of discipline for children. For instance, in Proverbs 22, verse 15, it says this, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. These are perhaps the sorts of proverbs we like to quote to our children. Some of us remind them that the Lord has called us to discipline them. But perhaps one aspect of this, and like proverbs, that we fail to recognize is that we ourselves are the children. We are the children who need to be disciplined. You and me. And like a good father, our Heavenly Father disciplines us. There are times in our lives that we will suffer. 
We will experience trials because of our own personal sins. Now, to be clear, this is not always the case. Nor is it the case that all suffering is because of sin. But there are times, there are times that you and I will experience fatherly chastisement. In those times, the Lord may bring to us a severe mercy. A great trial, a season of suffering, which will cause us great pain and sorrow. Sorrow in the moment, but in the grand scheme of things, is actually a great and tender mercy. Perhaps we will be driven to greater faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. Perhaps we will be humbled in ways that we need to be humbled. And sometimes there are need for us to repent of our sin. And many of you know what I speak of. Whatever the case may be, though, the discipline from the Lord is painful in the moment rather than pleasant. But later it has the promise to yield that peaceful fruit of righteousness. As it says in Hebrews. Fruit such as spiritual growth. Greater understanding of our sin. Greater apprehension of the greatness of our Savior Jesus. This beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ is a mercy from God. This kind of severe mercy is what we are looking in our text today. In fact, the account of Joseph has been building toward this severe mercy. Jacob and his sons were experiencing a great famine which had overtaken the whole of the world, or at least that region of the world at the time. And the only place that they could go to get food was in Egypt because of the wise planning of their chief administrator. But the identity of that administrator at that time was by the providence of God, none other than Joseph, the son of Jacob, who had risen from the place of prisoner and slave, a foreigner, to the man who was in charge of distributing the grain, the second in command in all of Egypt. Joseph was to be used as a chastening instrument in the hand of God for Jacob and his other sons. In order to draw this shattered covenant family back together. Because as we've gone through this, we've seen how Jacob's family is just being torn to pieces. God is going to draw them together through Joseph They were going to be confronted in their sin. And ultimately, what will be accomplished is through that family, the bringing of the Redeemer to the world. And so Joseph is this instrument in God's hands to this end. And the family of Jacob, as we have seen in our study, has become very dysfunctional. Throughout the account, we have seen various family struggles, conflicts, rivalries, infighting, dissents. And this really goes back even before they had come to Canaan. Even among the, the, the sisters, the wives of Jacob who had fought with one another. And now they're dealing with hearts which are being drawn into the Canaanite way of life. And God, through this severe mercy, the famine, 
but also Joseph's dealings with them will drive this family toward repentance and reconciliation. Now the brothers, for their part, think, of course, that they're just representatives going down to Egypt to buy some grain because of this, what they figure is just a short famine. But in the end, the whole family will be reconciled and resettled there. And the brothers will be reunited. They will be reunited with the brother that they had wronged many, many years prior. One that even they were convinced was probably dead. So what we're looking at today is simply the first part of that reconciliation account. That part where there's a severe mercy which drives us toward this reconciliation. The ten brothers who go down to Egypt and are faced with a reckoning. And so we jump into our text. Uh, or I should say, as we do, uh, the last time uh, that we, we had seen Jacob was actually back in chapter 37, and Jacob was mourning inconsolably for his son, Joseph. Remember that he believed, he had been at least led to believe that Joseph was dead, that he'd been torn apart by wild animals. But even 20 years on, Jacob is still the patriarch of the family, and so he is responsible for the family's well-being. And so there is this severe famine, and news had reached Jacob that there's food for sale in Egypt. But even as we observed the 20 years with Joseph, as we return to the rest of the family, uh, we see that even after all this time, the family is still, still very much dysfunctional. Jacob's first words as we return to him are, are, are a chiding of his sons for their inaction. Look at verse 1. He asks them, why are you looking at one another? I mean, we're starving here. There's food for sale. Why are we just staring at each other here? Do something. Jacob could see what his sons could not see. That something needed to be done to help the family survive. If we don't do something, the the whole family is going to die. There is grain to be bought, and so they need to stop sitting around. They need to do something. Now, the, in, the incompetence of these other sons of Jacob stands in sharp contrast with the wisdom and foresight of Joseph, who, by God's providence, saw the need to prepare for the famine. And so, Jacob ordered his sons to go down to Egypt and to buy grain so that the family would live and not die. And so, ten of Joseph's sons... Or, or rather, ten of Joseph's brothers, rather, are sent down by Jacob to buy grain. Only, Je- only Benjamin is not sent by Jacob. And the reason that Benjamin's not sent is that he's, uh, Jacob is fearful that something bad would happen to him on the trip. Now, Benjamin, you might remember, was the youngest of Jacob's Sons and the only remaining son, at least as far as Jacob is concerned, the only remaining son of his beloved wife, Rachel. And so these ten sons of Israel, and the use of this expression in verse 5, the, the sons of Israel, emphasizes their national identity. Which is to say that Israel was among many different ethnic groups and nations which made a trip down to Egypt to buy food. 
And so these, te- these, these ten sons of, e- of Israel, they go down to buy grain because the famine was great in Canaan. Now as they come to, to Egypt and they come to Joseph, we see in verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. Now remember, and we saw this before, but Joseph was, was governor because he had interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. But it's here, too, that the interpretation of Je- Joseph's own dreams, some 20 years prior, has now come, or is coming, to fruition. Verse, look at verse 6. It says, He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Well, Joseph remembers and is really struck by this. This is at least in part a fulfillment of what had been foretold in Genesis chapter 37. Remember, Joseph had dreamed of sheaves which bowed down to his sheaf. And the sun and the moon and the eleven stars which had done the same. So Jacob, or Joseph, oh no, Jacob, in that, at that time when the dream had happened, Jacob had recognized that also. He had understood Joseph's dream and had rebuked Joseph for that. Remember, remember what he said? He said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So Jacob wasn't really thrilled with his son's dreams. But Joseph remembers this many years later now. He remembers his dream, and he sees his brothers before him. He sees ten out of the eleven. They've come before him, and they're bowing to him. The rest, or rather, the the other brother, will have to come later. And so it becomes very clear to Joseph, at least, what needed to be done. Now, of course, for their part, the brothers... We're showing the proper deference toward a superior and the master of the land. But their bowing said a lot more than they had realized. Immediately Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And they will not recognize Joseph until much later when he reveals himself to them. Now, Joseph did not draw their attention to his identity, but rather he treated them like they were strangers and he spoke roughly to them. Look at verse 7. He just says this, Where do you come from? Joseph spoke harsh things to them, not necessarily by the words themselves, but in the manner in which he spoke to them. The implication of the way he was speaking to them was this, Why are you here? You're not welcome here. But the brothers answer, We have come from Canaan to buy food. Again, Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. It is here, actually, we do find a major theme, which has come up throughout the story of Joseph, that of recognition. Knowing and not knowing. This has happened over and over again. Joseph knew them, but they did not know him. Joseph knew the dreams, while others did not know the dreams. The blood-stained garment was known to Jacob, but he did not know that his son Joseph was not actually dead. The brothers knew he wasn't dead, but he had been sold. God knows things 
which are unknown to you and I. Knowing and not knowing. Recognition. Joseph had been a young man, perhaps a teen, when he was sold into slavery. His brothers, though, were much older than him. And so here he stands before his brothers. He is clean-shaven in the Egyptian style, while their brothers would have had their beards. And so it's easy to see in God's providence why they would not be able to recognize him. He's much older than the last time they'd seen him, and he doesn't appear like uh, the, the Jews would normally appear. And as Joseph, though, recognizes them, He also remembers. Look at verse 9. It says he remembered the dream that he had dreamed of them. Joseph had forgotten his afflictions in his father's house. This is, of course, why he had named one of his sons Manasseh. Because he had forgotten the afflictions of his house. He tried to forget those things. But he remembered the dream. He recalled the sheaths and the stars which bowed down. And now he sees before him a partial fulfillment of that. When taken now as a whole, the remembrance of Joseph drives him to construct a series of disciplines and chastisements and tests which will sanctify his brothers and ultimately heal the rift which existed in the family. And this was all to work out by God's providence because without God's providence, none of this would have worked. And Joseph had given, had given a strategy to rescue Egypt from famine, which had been based on Pharaoh's dreams. And now he has a strategy to rescue his own family, spiritually rescue his family because of his own dream. His family will be humbled to a point that they will be reconciled to him, but ultimately they will be reconciled to the Lord. And so as the flood of memories comes back to Joseph, which he had tried hard to forget, he responds in verse 9, and this is really interesting because he says this, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Joseph was going to test out their sincerity. Ten brothers had come down to Egypt without the rest of the family. All eleven of them were going to need to come. And Joseph needed to draw them in. He needed Benjamin to come join them. His only full brother. And so he was, going, he was to begin to enact a plan to force them to bring Benjamin down to Egypt. Now the accusation of them being spies covers the fact that he in fact knows them. He knows who they are. This was designed to allow him to continue questioning them. And to finagle out of them uh, information in a, in a confession that there really was another brother who needed to come. And so they, and they stayed emphatically to this. No, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And so they, they deny being spies. They, they've only come to buy food. And, and they mention they mention the fact that they are the son of the sons of one man because and this is a way to undermine the accusation of being spies because no family would risk most all of their sons on the dangerous work of spying. You don't send all of these sons together to go spy together. 
You don't want to lose your entire family all at once. And so that's their argument. They say, no, 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 we're all, we're all part of the same family. We, we're, we can't possibly be spies who would do such a thing. But in saying this, in saying that they are all sons of one man unwittingly, they include Joseph, who's unknown to them. Isn't that fascinating? They mention, or, or rather, Joseph's response, though, was equally emphatic. No, no, it's in the of the land that you've come to see. Joseph continues to hammer away with his accusation, which again is designed to elicit more information out of them. And in God's providence, it works. Look at verse 13. No, we, we are, we are serv- our, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. And here, again, the brothers reveal something more about themselves. Indeed, there is one more brother who is back in Canaan. Benjamin as well. And then there's another one who, as they understood matters, had died some time ago. And here the brothers are bumbling their way through this interview with Joseph, hopelessly at a disadvantage to Joseph, who knows who they are, even as they don't know who he is. And now Joseph has the piece of information that he had desired. There, in fact, is another brother. Jo- uh, Benjamin, rather, is alive. And so their, their interview had unwittingly provided further grounds for testing of their honesty. And so Joseph again reiterates the accusation. Indeed, indeed, no, no, it's like I said, you, you're spies. Joseph, assuming their guilt, told them that they must be tested. They must be tested to see if they're in fact honest. They will be detained and will not be able to leave that place until the youngest brother comes there as well. Joseph was explicitly testing them to see whether or not they're telling the truth. This is a test of human fidelity. If they have lied about their brother, then they have lied about being spies. Now, this of course is all a ruse, right? This is a test, but it's not the kind of test that the brothers think it is. In actuality, what Joseph was doing in this test was to ensure that Benjamin would be brought to Egypt so that he could be under the protection and security of Joseph. Now, the the initial proposal was for one to go back while the others uh, remained, and he reiterated that he was acting under the authority of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in this test. So he's he's saying, I have the full authority to do this. And so he puts them in prison for three days. Together. Now, doing this is also very purposeful. Three days with the brothers in prison will give them ample time to squabble with one another over which one has to be, uh, gets to go and who has to be left behind. It's all, it's all very much by design. This also gave them a taste of their own medicine. Recall how they had put Joseph in the pit prior to selling him as a slave. You have to wonder what sort of soul-searching went on over the course of those three days in that dungeon together. Now, there's no indication in the text that anyone volunteered to go, or if they, were, or if they tried to determine who should go or who should stay. 
There's, there's nothing said about that. But ultimately, the brothers will not have to make that decision because plans will have changed. Verse 18, after three days, Joseph had proposed a new condition. He says, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. So now, instead of only one going, now only one will have to remain. And the famine, had, which was threatening their lives... But now Joseph is also threatening their lives. He says, if you, if you will do this, then you will live. You will survive the famine, and you will survive my power. But he tells them something else, too. And, and did you notice this? He indicated why his decision had been changed. What does he say? He says, he fears God. As I fear God. Now in saying this, Joseph assumes that they fear God too. But this will also cause the brothers to view their trial, which they're experiencing as a judgment from God. Which is, in some sense, exactly what it is. Joseph didn't desire to detain them further. Joseph knew that they had family back in Canaan which needed food. They're starving. He was not looking to be more harsh than necessary. And Joseph's new plan was actually more lenient. It was actually much wiser. Only one now would be detained, while the others could take the food back and return with their younger brother. This change in plan not only allowed uh, more food to be transported back, you know, have nine, uh, nine donkeys and uh, carrying food back instead of just one, but it also placed the brothers in a similar spot to what they had done to him. When they return with the younger brother, then the truthfulness will be verified. The brothers, however, as they evaluate the situation that they are in, believed that they were being punished by God as they began to talk among themselves. Look at verse 21. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. This is very striking, isn't it? Their guilt over what had happened 20 years before was now beginning to weigh on them. It is interesting that they made this connection even after all these years. Perhaps, perhaps they had been crying out in distress to, to Joseph. And Joseph actually is much more lenient with them than they had been with him. Although the charge of being spies was false, they viewed the situation they were in as a chastisement from the Lord. Often God uses people to bring about justice for crime. Here, what they viewed as an Egyptian administrator was being used by God to punish them. Reuben, believing himself perhaps to be vindicated, argued for his not being the one to be left behind. He said this, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. 
So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. This is a reckoning. The Lord is punishing us because of what we've done. And I told you not to do it. And as they fought among themselves, what they didn't realize was that there was an Egyptian official who was standing there who understood everything that they were saying. This is so wonderful. Joseph understood them. Up to this point, there had been an interpreter used, and so they didn't realize that he could understand them because they didn't know who he was. At this point, Joseph, though, becomes overwhelmed with emotion, and he turns, and he weeps. This is probably because his brothers and his presence had made an admission of guilt. And he saw their guilt, and he was moved by it. They had recognized the wrong that they had done. This moved him to tears. When he returned to them again, he spoke to them. And then he took Simeon to be his prisoner. He probably realized that the responsibility for selling him into slavery rested with the second-born son. And so Joseph had Simeon bound before their eyes, which was done to impress upon them the seriousness of the situation. In order for them to see Simeon again, they were going to need to produce Benjamin. And Joseph then made an order to fill them in sacks with grain, but to return the silver that had been paid to put that back into the men's sacks. Now what's the purpose of this? Why does he do this? Why does he return their money to them? His motives are not given, and commentators are split over this. Some see this as punitive. In other words, Joseph wanted to trump up evidence that they were dishonest men, while others actually see his action as redemptive. Joseph wanted to force them to face their past, all while treating them generously. Whatever his purposes were, he had thought about this carefully, and the net result will be that they are forced to face their past and become fearful of the Egyptians because they think they're going to think we stole from them. And so the grain is loaded, the provisions are given for the journey, and the brothers depart. And as they reach their first stop for the night, one of the brothers opens his sack, and he discovers the money, and he reports this to his brothers. All at this, it says, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another. What is this that God has done to us? And the charge that they were thieves and spies... And now, and now the money is in our sacks. Oh no! Surely God is punishing us for our misdeeds. This is, by the way, the first time the brothers make any mention of God. When the brothers returned to Canaan with their fa- and to their father, Jacob, they told him all that had taken place. Now, all, in verse 29, is a relative term. (laughs) When they returned to their father uh, before, they had deceived him regarding what had happened to Joseph. They suspect that they are being punished for what they had done, but they, they don't yet divulge their crime to their father. They don't tell him all that had taken place. They just share all that had taken place 
in Egypt. Nevertheless, they do tell him what had happened, the roughness of the speech from the Lord of the land, them being treated as criminals. In 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 verse 30, in the Greek Septuagint, translates as they were, quote, taken into prison as spies. And they had to leave Simeon behind. And they would see him only if they brought Benjamin back with them. Now up to this point, Jacob probably found their story to be credible. But their money being found in the mouth of their sacks makes them all look guilty. Particularly as Jacob was probably well aware of the character of his sons. They were not always trustworthy. His sons were not always faithful. Did they, did they sell Simeon in Egypt? That's kind of been on his mind. These stinking sons of mine sold Simeon. And they're going to tell me that you know, they were accused of all this, that, and the other. And, then, and now, oh, now they want to take Benjamin? And then they're going to go sell him too? You can kind of see you know, the way Jacob's thinking, but understand this, that there's a wide breach in the family. And this money just makes matters worse. And so Jacob responds to his sons, verse 36, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All of this has come against me. This is, of course, an argument against taking Benjamin back to Egypt. In Jacob's mind, the brothers are to blame for all of his bereavement. As far as he's concerned, Simeon is as good as dead. And he figures that his sons are either lying to him or that the Egyptian lord can't be trusted. But he has, he has absolutely no intention of returning to Egypt to fetch Simeon. If Simeon's still alive, he's on his own. We are not going back there. Jacob, of course, is in utter despair. Everything is against me, he says. And the loss of children is the most woeful of sorrows. And Jacob's self-pity is understandable. However, his holding back Benjamin will not allow him to have all of his children return. Now, of course, he doesn't see this. He doesn't understand this yet. Benjamin had, though, become something of an idol to him. He was grasping. He was grasping him tightly. He was not trusting in the promises of the Lord. Reuben, perhaps sensing his own responsibility, offered to become childless himself in order to rescue the family. Verse 37, Kill my two sons, and if I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Reuben's like, trust me, Dad. I'll, I'll go get Simeon. I'll take it. You can kill my two sons if I don't make it back. Now, Reuben's not actually offering his children up for ransom. And, of course, Jacob has no intention of going through with such a proposal. This is being offered up as uh, something of hyperbole for a dramatic effect. Nevertheless, he is willing to take Benjamin into his protective custody and he promised to bring him and Simeon back home with him. At this point, though, Jacob is unwilling to take, let this take place. Verse 38, he says, My son shall not go down with you 
for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. His brother is dead and he is the only one left, Jacob says. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. I'm going to die in sorrow. Now Jacob's explanation is forceful and no doubt would have stunned Reuben and really the other brothers too. He says, My son shall not go with you, for his brother is dead. He is the only one left. What's he talking about? We talk about the fact that Joseph is dead, and Benjamin, that's his only son he has left, the only son that matters to him at least, the only son of his beloved Rachel. That's got to hurt Reuben a lot. Joseph was, Joseph, uh, J- Joseph's gone and Jacob is not about to lose Benjamin. Not for anything. And so this entire circle is closed around the people who mattered the most to Jacob. And by the way, is part of the problem in this family, as we've seen over and over again. He was not about to entrust his son to Reuben. If anything were to happen along the way, Jacob would die with sorrow. He already had enough. He was determined to grasp tightly to this one that he loved. Even in his answer, Jacob revealed what is wrong in this family. The patriarch is continuing the favoritism which has done nothing but wreak havoc in this family for decades. Decades. But a day of reckoning has come. And the famine would need to get worse in order to force the family to deal with it. Well, we'll see that more next time. The situation in which the sons of Jacob found themselves in must have been confusing and frightening, bewildering. Here they were thinking that they were before an Egyptian official and who, who then accuses them of being spies. They're then imprisoned. One of their brothers is held captive. And they're told that, that they have to return with their youngest brother or they will not see their other brother again. All the while they go home, they find money in their bags, and they do not understand what's happening to them. They figure, God is punishing us for our crimes. They don't recognize Joseph, though Joseph recognizes them. And Joseph was pretty severe toward them. Joseph was an instrument of chastisements in the hand of God. And he has a scheme which is going to work because of God's providence. There are times in our lives as Christians that we will experience to greater or lesser degrees a severe mercy such as this. We will be disciplined by the Lord, and sometimes the Lord will use other people to accomplish that task. We will be disciplined at the hands of others sometimes. In a more formal way, this is actually one of the roles of the elders of the church. The elders of the church are instruments of God to this end. The Lord can and often will humble us, will show us our sin, will bring these kinds of severe mercies into our lives for the purpose of making us more like Jesus. And 
to that, we can rejoice in that. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us as sons because we are His sons. By faith, we are sons and heirs of the promises. And this is true for all those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. As you trust in Christ as Savior, you can also take comfort in the fact that the Heavenly Father is dealing with you, too. Sin is being brought to the surface. Light is being shined in the dark parts of your soul. And beloved congregation, you can rejoice in this. You can take great joy in the Father disciplining you as a son. Now you might say, well that doesn't sound real pleasant. Well it's not pleasant. It's never pleasant, but it is good. It's for our good. It is God's mercy to you and to me. Jacob and his family were a mess. And you know what they needed? They needed the rod of discipline. And they got it. And they will be brought back together again for their good. They experienced this severe mercy, this chastisement for the Lord, from the Lord, which was unpleasant, but good. It was for their good. And really, it was for your good and mine too. Because in God's good providence, this severe mercy to them was a severe mercy to us as well. Because it's through Israel which comes our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you might face various trials, but like it says in James, we can rejoice in them. Because God is dealing with us. And that is for our good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the ways in which you deal with us sinners that you love because of our Savior Jesus Christ. We are thankful that you not only save us, but you continue to deal with us. You continue to discipline us as necessary. We're also thankful that these kinds of severe mercies don't come all at once, for we would be crushed. You are indeed so merciful to us. You don't bring the rod upon us on every single little point all at once, but you do so throughout our lives, and to that we are grateful. We are grateful, Lord, that you do discipline us, that you draw us to yourself, that we may die to sin and live unto righteousness. Thank you, God, for continually sanctifying us by your word and by your spirit. May we be faithful to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to help one another as you deal with each one of us sinners saved by Jesus. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.